All right, we're going to get started today with the 133rd Psalm. This is a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for this beautiful day. day. Thank you for the breeze that we have to keep us cool in this uh, coming summer months. And uh, thank you for this place that we have to meet until a building is ready. And uh, just thank you for having brought us all here safely and for what you've done for us in the week behind us and what we anticipate in the week ahead. And I thank you for each person that's here. And I would ask that you would bless them, take good care of them and help them to... uh, Uh, just maybe hear something that will bless them and help them to uh, have a greater understanding of you and your word and uh, especially about the glory of your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, not many announcements today. We uh, uh, have got no progress at all on the building that we bought five weeks ago. There's been a problem with the county and that continues on. So uh, no, uh, nothing at all on that. And uh, I think everybody here has been baptized. If you haven't and you'd like to at some point be scripturally baptized, we get the water right back here. And uh, I'll be willing to do that any day of the week. And um, let's see here. Today is our 71st Genesis sermon. So uh, we're uh, moving right along. We're in Genesis uh, chapter 30 still. And um, we will do a New Testament reading today. The sermon won't be very long. And uh, it'll be standard length, I should say. So um, we'll start with Romans chapter 15, and we're just going to do the first 13 verses today. And uh, this is just a quick analysis of them. It's nothing in depth. Uh, but uh, verse uh, Gen- Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now remember, this is going back to chapter 14. It was speaking about the weak believer in Christ, the one who doesn't eat certain foods or doesn't drink or whatever, that we should bear with the people who are weaker and um, with the scruples of the weak, he says, and not to please ourselves. Uh, Everything that we should do, and it's very hard to do. I mean, we're kind of uh, uh, centered on our own bodies and the things that we like, we tend to gravitate towards. But if we can put ourselves aside and look at the needs of others, that's always a real plus. And uh, uh, God does look with favor on that when we put our own desires aside for the sake of others. Anyway, verse 2 says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. All right, edification is building up. So uh, uh, look to our neighbors, look to them for good. And that's an Old Testament principle as well as a New Testament principle. It's something that uh, uh, we're to be uh, friendly with our neighbor, neighbors, to love our neighbors, ourself, etc. And it uh, follows right in through the New Testament that uh, trying to be amicable with our neighbor. And that doesn't just mean the person that lives next to us, as uh, we see in uh, uh, America today. But it means our neighbor is our fellow man. Uh, Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And when he says, for even Christ did not please himself, he's showing us the standard. Here we have Jesus Christ. He is the standard. And he didn't come and please himself. Instead, he uh, deferred to others. And uh, the reproaches of those who reproached you, meaning God, fell on me. It's showing that uh, when somebody reproaches God, they're actually reproaching Jesus Christ. And uh, implicitly, then, Jesus is God. And we're going to talk a lot about reproach today. Um, Verse uh, 4. 
For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. And that's something that we're finding out. I mean, just more and more, every sermon is that we're in Genesis. We're in our 71st Genesis sermon. And everything that has been written is to help us to learn something about our walk, our relationship with God, who he is and how we relate to him. And uh, that's why these things are written. And I would go so far as to say that everything that was written has an application one way or another, whether it's an actual application or whether it's a spiritual application. These things were written for our uh, learning. And Paul confirms that, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. You're not going to get hope from any other religion on earth. You're not going to get hope from a person who will grow old and die. You're not going to get hope from a lot of money in the bank. We've seen people's wealth disappear completely in the past few years. And uh, those that were fortunate enough, enough to have escaped that, maybe they feel superior and that they'll never lose their wealth. Let me tell you, it can all disappear in a second. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And that's what Paul says is we get our hope and we find it right here in the scriptures. Verse 5. Uh, um, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. All right, wonderful things. He wants us to be like-minded towards one another just as God is towards us and just as we are in our relationship with God because of our knowledge of him through the scripture. We want to go ahead and uh, uh, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. Okay, verse six, that you may be with one mind and one mouth, glorify God and the, uh, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, one mind and one mouth, he says. We're to be united in our glory of God. And when he says God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's putting all three of them in one category. God, God the father, God the son, and elsewhere in his writings, he includes God the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian model. So, um uh, that's what we should be doing is glorifying God through Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 7 says, Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Anytime you see a therefore, go back and see what it's there for. The things we've been talking about uh, are what we're having explained to us in a, a concise sentence now. Therefore, receive one another. That means your neighbor and the weak in the faith and the weak around you, etc. Receive them just as Christ also received us. How did Christ receive us? We were weak and he was strong. We were fallen and he was in glory. We are sinful human beings and he's the perfect creator God. And yet he received us in that state. And that's how we re should receive others. And uh, one of the devotionals I typed this past week was, and it's something I talked to Darlene here about last week, is if you're in a room full of criminals that are intent on killing you and somebody throws in a grenade, would it be appropriate for you to jump on that grenade to save those criminals' lives? Considering that you know Jesus Christ and you will go to glory and they don't know Jesus Christ and they're going to be condemned, which would be the more logical choice? And I would uh, submit to you that the logical choice is that we should fall on the grenade even if they hate us. And that's what uh, we can see from here. We were at enmity with God. We were in fighting with God. We were completely separate from him and Christ stepped in and he reconciled us to God the Father. So we should be the same. Uh, verse nine and the, uh, where was I? Uh, uh, verse eight, I'm sorry. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, meaning the Jewish people, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Promises to the fathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who we've been looking at. God made these promises 
and then he introduced the Mosaic Law and the Jewish people to uh, show us what is coming. And um, uh, he, uh, it says he has become a servant to the circumcision. That means he came in the flesh. He was circumcised as a Jew. He lived out the law that we cannot live, etc. And that was in order to confirm those promises made to the fathers. Verse 9, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. What's he saying? The Gentiles might glorify God because of what he did for the circumcision. He says, uh, quotes the Old Testament. He quotes, for this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So he's saying something about the Gentiles, even though he's saying that Christ came as a servant to the circumcision. The Gentiles see the work of God done on our behalf, fulfilling the law that we could never fulfill. And therefore, um, uh, for this reason, I will confess you, meaning Jesus Christ, among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10, and again he says, again quoting the scriptures, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. His people are the covenant people, the circumcision, the Jewish people. Rejoice, Gentiles, with them. Anybody that thinks that the Jewish people are out, anybody that thinks that they don't have any plan and purpose for God in the future is mistaken. Jesus Christ is going to return to Jerusalem. He's not going to return to Turtle Beach. He's not going to return to Rome. He's not going to return to uh, Tokyo, Japan. He's going to return to Jerusalem. And the reason why the Jewish people are back in the land right now is so that he will return to his people in Jerusalem. And he will be glorified through the very people that rejected him 2,000 years ago. Anybody that can't see that needs to simply pick up their Bible and start at the beginning again. And you can see how he is showing us these types and pictures again and again. I will never reject the covenant that I have made to these people. It will never happen. All right. Anyway, uh, verse 11. And again, um, uh, he quotes the scriptures a, a third time. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. He's including the Gentiles again and again because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the one that carries the message to the Gentile world while the Jewish people are in captivity because of their disobedience. That time has ended. They're back in the land. Things are going to start moving more and more quickly. And we've seen that in the past 40 or 50 years. And it's going to become almost like a snowball going down a mountain in the days ahead. We are going to see the world changing in ways that we cannot even imagine day by day. Um, verse uh, 12, he again quotes the scriptures. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him, meaning Jesus, the Gentiles shall hope. Well, the root of Jesse, Jesse is the father of uh, David. Um, is it Jesse? Yeah, Jesse is the father of David. So the root of Jesse means Jesus Christ. He is the greater David. All right. And he who shall rise, meaning Jesus, shall reign over the Gentiles. And he is. He's been reigning over the Gentiles now for 2,000 years. That doesn't mean all Gentiles have called on Jesus, but he is reigning over the Gentiles through his church and through his people. He's making this wonderful dispensation of grace to the people of the world after having fulfilled the law through the people of Israel. Um, verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wonderful words. It's just great how uh, God has uh, done these things for the people of the world by introducing a promise to people, confirming that promise through the sons and through the sons and then introducing the law and then finally fulfilling the law on our behalf and then after that, calling us out of the Gentile people of the world to share in what he did, which we don't even deserve. You talk about grace and mercy, it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. So there you go. Wonderful things and... Um, 
That's our New Testament reading for the week. And we'll read one more short psalm. The last psalm was a very short one. And uh, we have one more short psalm. And then we'll go ahead and get into uh, the rest of the day. So this will be the 134th psalm. And this is also a song of ascents. Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. Oh, wonderful words from our creator. And the Song of Ascents, as I said, there's 14 of them. And uh, if you're ever in a down state, if you're ever at a time where your uh, life is uh, miserable and you just you need to get your eyes off of yourself, I often will email to people and I'll say, uh, read the Psalms of Ascents. Read all 14 of them in a row and your eyes will slowly be lifted from the woe that you're in, woe to the tents of Kedar and all that it says. Your eyes will be lifted to the hills and then to the holy city of Jerusalem and then to the holy tabernacle and then to the creator of all things. So the Psalms of Ascents, it starts with Psalm 120 and there's 14 Psalms after that. So uh, it's just a a beautiful thing to do if you're ever in that desperate state. Now, a couple other announcements. Um, uh, I didn't write anything down in my announcement thing, but I'm kind of looking around and I'm thinking that uh, Paul Stoll, who, uh, as you know, was our missionary with his wife uh, to Japan for a year, came back and he had two heart valves replaced uh, about a week and a quarter ago, just uh, I think it was nine days ago. He is here at Church on the Beach today, and he's looking absolutely wonderful, and we want to praise the Lord and thank the Lord for that because, uh, uh, you know, it's a worrisome thing, and uh, we're living in a marvelous age where these things can happen, but uh, I described what the doctors actually had to go through last week, and uh, it was a, a horrendous surgery. They were uh, in there a lot longer than they expected, and uh, Paul just fought them all of the way, but uh, they prevailed. So uh, glad to have you here, Brother Paul. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I got one other thing I want to announce, which uh, it's just a joy to me. And uh, I'm very tired today. I'm exceedingly tired because it's been a long week, and I will blame it on my friend Sergio, who is visiting. He... Uh, uh, was here at Church on the Beach for uh, our first year or so, and he did all of the video work, he did all of the camera work, the, uh, the audio work, everything, and uh, he also did the uh, YouTube work. Uh, he just did all of it, and then he left, and uh, he came back for a week this week, and uh, I've uh, gotten less sleep in the past uh, five days or so since he arrived than I've gotten in the past, you know, ever, I think. I'm just, so I'm very tired, but I'm very happy to have him here, and my hat is off to seeing you, Sergio, and I hope that you will fulfill uh, the things that we have looked at over the past couple days, and uh, I won't say what it is, because I don't want anybody to get overly excited, but uh, uh, I have anticipation for the uh, days ahead in Sergio's life, and uh, I know he misses his wife, and he'll be going back to her very soon, Uh, so uh, it's just great to have you here. Anyway, um, that's uh, our daily reading and our psalm reading, and uh, we'll go ahead and get into the sermon, which is Genesis 30. It's uh, verses 14 through 24, and this is called, God Has Taken Away My Reproach. Before we do that, as I do each and every week, I've got uh, a few things from this day in history, and I'd like to go ahead and mention them. Uh, Today is 28 April, and on this day in 1686... This is just one of the things I absolutely love. The first volume of Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica was published. And uh, I believe by the time it was done, it was a three-volume set. Isaac Newton was the greatest scientist. Nobody disputes this. The greatest scientist of all time. He was the greatest mind ever. Uh, The Bible does say that Solomon was the wisest man ever. Knowledge and wisdom aren't always the same thing. So I'll give Isaac Newton the knowledge part and we'll give uh, Solomon the wisdom part. But um, uh, he was a devout Christian. 
Isaac Newton was a devout Christian. However, uh, it's believed that he really didn't hold too uh, firmly to the Trinitarian model. And uh, he was certainly not a fan of um, some of the, uh, the things that the church was doing at that time. When he died, he would not take the final absolution. I don't think he thought that was necessary and all these things that uh, are the traditions of men and not of the Bible. But uh, he held to the Bible. But this guy wrote these three volumes of Principia Mathematica, and he also did a ton of other scientific work. He studied the heavens. He studied light. He studied uh, chemicals. And it, it, it was unimaginable the amount of the volume of industry that came out of this man in a short time. And yet he wrote more about theology than he wrote about science. And so that shows you, one, that he was highly interested in theology, but more than that, he, uh, he was just, I don't know how the guy ever slept, because what he did in science alone was enough to keep anybody awake for a whole lifetime. And then he wrote more about theology than science. And in particular, he loved to look into the Bible and try to find hidden, pat, hidden patterns, and he also looked into the Bible to uh, uh, try to determine the future through prophetic utterances, especially Daniel, the book of Daniel, who was very uh, in, interested in what Daniel had to say about um, uh, the coming ages of the world. And uh, anyway, so that's uh, Isaac Newton. Uh, we'll move on to 1788. Maryland. Maryland became the seventh state to ratify the U.S. Constitution on this day, 28 April. So um, uh, I think all 13 eventually did ratify it. As a matter of fact, I know they did. And uh, we became a fledgling nation. And then from there, we've moved on into the 50 great states of the United States. Uh, on the same day, one year later, a mutiny on the British ship Bounty took place when a rebel crew took the ship and set sail to Pitcairn Island. And uh, the mutineers left Captain W. Bly and 18 sailors adrift. And they were eventually rescued and... Uh, uh, the uh, descendants of Pitcairn Island are still there to this day. They can trace their history right back to this uh, occurrence. But uh, if you've never seen the movie, there's probably 50 uh, versions of the movie, The Mutiny on the Bounty, but uh, pick one and watch it, and you'll learn a little bit of history. And uh, let's see here, 1910 on this day, the first night air flight was conducted by Claude Graham White in England. And uh, you think about that was 1910. They didn't have any, uh, you know, they, they probably put down candles or something as a landing strip. And to just think that this guy did that in the, the dark of England at the time, it was probably pretty scary. And uh, I've seen pictures of the plane that he used, and it was like a Wright Brothers thing. It was made of nothing. So if he landed wrong, he would have been destroyed. But uh, fun stuff there. And uh, 1914, this is great stuff for everybody that lives in Florida, and we're talking about somebody from Florida, is um, W.H. Carrier patented his design of the air conditioner. So thank you, W.H. Carrier. Uh, we love you for that. We thank you for that. And uh, uh, Carrier air conditioners are still made and sold today, but uh, that was uh, first uh, patented in 1914. And then we come to 1916. The British declared martial law throughout Ireland. And I don't know the reason I didn't have time to study this because of Sergio being here, but um, I imagine it was probably because of the conflict between Protestants and Catholics. And uh, that is not a reason to, you know, have these age-long fights, which they've had over in that area. They've been bombing each other and killing each other over religion. And, uh, uh, you know, we don't do that to Buddhists and we don't do that to Hindus. So there shouldn't be any of this type of thing between Christians either. If somebody wants to be wrong in their theology, that's their choice. 
What we need to do is to lead them to correct theology and say, this is God's word. Either this is true or it's not. And if it is, then let me show you where you're wrong. But to go blowing somebody else up because they agree or disagree on precepts of this word makes no sense at all. We've got enough animosity between us and the Muslims that are trying to kill us and make us in, uh, you know, into, bring us into submission. We don't need to be doing that among Christian circles, and we certainly don't do it with anybody else. So uh, that was uh, something that I believe was probably the impetus for that back in um, 1916. Then in 1919, talk about disaster following disaster, the League of Nations was founded, and uh, that turned to be, uh, you know, that was just a complete disaster. And uh, so what did they do? They tried it again. They made the United Nations, which is even worse. And we're stuck with this uh, giant organization that does nothing for the good of the world. It's uh, very liberal. It's very, uh, you know, crazy in their thinking about how to handle things. And they try to strip people of their rights when they say that they're doing it for the sake of the people. It's exactly the opposite. You know, it's like going back to Isaiah chapter 1, I think it is, where it says, Woe to you. It's not chapter 1. Anyway, Isaiah says, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil and trade darkness for light and light for darkness and salt for uh, sweet or bitterness for sweet. And uh, that's what's going on. That's what's going on in the world with the United Nations is they say this is a good thing when in fact it's a crummy thing. So uh, there you go. League of Nations founded all, or started all that on that path in 1919. And then, of course, we come to 1930, which is, does anybody know where this was? It was the first organized night baseball game. Does anybody know where that was held? Nope. I figured my dad would know. It's um, It was in um, Independence, Kansas. That was the first organized night baseball game. Now, I'll tell you something. That's something a little bit different than what we tried in the 1990s. The government got into the sports business, and they tried to have night basketball, you know, keep people off the streets. It works much, much better when private industry does these type of things and when we don't get the government involved in things that should be just personal decisions. But uh, that's my little thing against the uh, way things are done nowadays. Um, 1947. Oh, this is this is wonderful. Thor Heyerdahl and five others set out on a balsa wood craft known as Kontiki. There you go. If you've never seen the documentary, it is outstanding. I got to tell you what, it is outstanding. I'm almost in tears thinking about it. The, the wonderful thing that this guy did and the adventure that he went on. Uh, he uh, uh, went to prove that Peruvians could have settled in Polynesia. And the trip began in Peru, and it took this guy 101 days to make it across. And they document everything that happened along the way and the trials they suffered and the, the joy of arriving. And, man, they started out clean-shaven, and they came out looking like me, but worse. And uh, it was it was really a, an adventure. So my hat is off to Thor Heyerdahl and... Uh, 1952 on this day, 28 April, uh, the U.S. occupation of Japan, something that's near and dear to me, that officially ended when a treaty with the U.S. and 47 other countries went into effect. Well, it began on the day that we uh, Japan signed the uh, unconditional surrender on the battleship Missouri. We went in and we occupied from that time, 1945, up until 1952. And the occupation ended that at that time. However, it did not end our presence in Japan. We are their protectorate. We are under obligation to take care of them. They are by law bound to not have any offensive forces in their nation. Uh, they only have what's called the JASDEF, the Japanese Area Self-Defense Forces. And it's a bunch of little cannons they have that they can shoot at things that come and try to attack them. But it, 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 they're really in an ineffective force. Rather, the United States is their protector. 
and uh, they like us there or they have in the past. Okinawa, there's a little bit of problem down in that area because of the uh, Marine presence. And if anybody here was a Marine, you know you're a little bit more bullheaded than the rest of the uh, services. But um, uh, they, uh, they do like us over there. And it was a joy to serve in Japan for six years. But uh, that was 1952. And then this is something, if this offends you, I'm sorry, I can't help it. But uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, he is, uh, in my opinion, a traitor to our nation. And uh, he uh, refused induction into the United States Army and was stripped of his boxing title, which, of course, we know it was given back to him. But um, he was born in a Christian family named Cassius Clay. He uh, uh, was a coward. The Bible says on the very last page of the Bible that cowards will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And um, they are excluded. And he thought that his skin was too important to be uh, uh, sent off to uh, serve in the country that he has been benefited so greatly from. And uh, he converted to Islam. And you talk about a joke. He cited religious reasons for grounds for his refusal. So I'm a Muslim. I, I would never go to war. When uh, That is the principal tenet of Islam. Islam means submission. Either you submit to Islam or you be killed. And so, you know, it's convoluted thinking. It's uh, self-protection. And I have no problem that with people that don't want to serve, but you have to have a valid reason. If you really are a pacifist, I can agree with that. But to convert from Christianity to Islam and make this stand, I have, I have no like for Muhammad Ali at all. So uh, one last thing to get off of that, the uh, last Americans were evacuated from Saigon on this day. And you remember the uh, helicopter landing above the embassy and people getting up into the helicopter and taking off. And uh, why did that happen? It was a little country that we could have sub subdued, but once politicians get involved in the uh, directing of a war, then it is, uh, uh, it, it's a goner. You will not win that war. The uh, liberals in the country got us into that war. They started to dictate the uh, rules of the war. And then the funny thing is the liberals in the country protested the war. And so the entire scenario of the Vietnam War is a disaster for our country because of liberal theology liberal thinking in our society. And I don't hate liberals, but I do dislike what they believe. And they cost us tens of thousands of lives because of their inability to say, we are going to engage in this and we're going to win it or we're going to withdraw. So there you go. That's my little stand on that today. And I don't mean to be bullheaded about it, but these things really upset me. Uh, you know, we have righteous standards to uphold and where are we going to get those standards from? Okay, enough of that. We're going to get into uh, Genesis chapter 30. I'll read you the text right now. It's uh, verses 14 through 24, and uh, this is called, God has taken away my reproach. So uh, verse 14, now Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest. I want you to think about why these verses are in here, because I had read these verses, I probably read them a hundred times, and I've never been able to discern why until I started reading the Hebrew and doing a study for this sermon, I had no idea what God was trying to tell us. And today I will give you what I believe God is trying to tell us in the story. As a matter of fact, I know it is. But uh, try to think through what God is trying to tell us in this beautiful story. Um, now Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you, would, you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. Verse 17, and God conceived, uh, listen to Leah, 
and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph. And she said, the Lord shall add to me another son. <clears throat> Excuse me. Wonderful words from our creator. All right. The word reproach, it's a word that we use sometimes. It can be used in a few ways. It can uh, be something active, such as when someone reproaches another person or God. The king of Assyria sent messengers to reproach the name of the living God. We find that in the book of Kings, and we find it also in the book of Isaiah. And uh, what did God do? He turned around and he destroyed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. The lesson there is, don't reproach God. The word can also mean someone who uh, feels blameworthy about something or ashamed because they've done something wrong or because they're somehow deficient. I know that the Japanese people feel reproach after having entered into and then lost the Second World War. They carry the reproach of what happened, of the allegiance that they put in a person that they thought was God, of the unconditional surrender and the su subsequent occupation. Many still feel the reproaches they have to rely on America as her defender. They are a nation with a complex, but in the world of nations, they're not alone. Lots of nations have complexes. Rachel, she felt her own reproach. She was barren and she felt the shame of her barrenness. It was a stigma which she longed to end. And this is true with other women of the Bible as well. They perceived in themselves a lack of carrying out God's command right from the beginning, which was to multiply the race. To some degree, many of us will feel our own reproach. Maybe we have a, a physical or a mental deficiency, which is either real or perceived, that we feel ashamed of. I know of a lady who is in her 40s, and she lives in a culture where being married is of paramount importance, and yet she's never been married. And so she feels the reproach of what is going on in her life. I know others in America who have never been married as well, and some who have served in prison, I know those who have failed their spouse or failed their children. I know those who have lost jobs, lost their home, or even lost all of their wealth. And all of them have indicated to me that they feel reproach or they, they bear a guilt of some type. In fact, I would guess that the majority of us have something that we feel ashamed about. The good news is that where we are deficient or where we fail, God can shine through all the more brightly in our lives. And we're going to see this today in the life of Rachel. If we will only allow him to do so, he can do it. In him, there is a complete release from the values of this world. In him, there is no wealthy or poor. There is no intellectually smart, and there's no incredibly stupid. To him, we're all his handiwork, and each one of us serves a good plan, a good purpose in his plan. To the unmarried, you know, there's a much better hope than a husband. Isaiah says to the widow, he says, your maker is your husband. How much better is that than a man who will let you down, who will give you grief and eventually wear out and die from the years of life? The Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. He's a father to the orphan. He's a husband to the widow. He's a caretaker of the downtrodden. And he's the comforter of the sick and the feeble. 
He is the covenant-keeping Lord who has his eyes upon all people at all times. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 41. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken to the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and I have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God and I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Israel has borne their own reproach, both actively as the Lord has chastised them. He's exiled them twice around the world, plus chastised them in the pages of the Bible. And they've also passively been reproached in the acknowledgement of their own sins. The latter is far less than it should be. I will be the first to admit that. But one thing I know is that when a Jewish person comes to the Lord, there is little else that's as incredible to see. They understand the reproach that they bore in an entirely new context. And yet, They can identify with his workings in their life in a way that is completely new. It is a fantastic thing to see a Jewish person come to Jesus Christ. The story of Jacob having children is not yet through, and today we're going to continue to see the formation of a people who are going to be set apart by God. Understanding the past and how it came about and how it relates to the present will also give us a better understanding about the future. When Christ comes again, to dwell among his people. Today's story includes more children and the taking away of the reproach of one of the four mothers of the children of Israel, Jacob's beloved Rachel. So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. We have three specific thoughts today. The first is mandrakes for mom. This is verse 14. Now Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Reuben is a little boy at this time, maybe about five or six years old. He's just this little child. And it says, in the days of the wheat harvest. Now, I want you to understand that this story that we're going to look at today comprises about three years or maybe four years of time. But God is focusing on this time as a reference point for the rest of the story. He went out in the time of the wheat harvest, which would have been the May time frame. And it is around the time of the feast of Shavuot in the Old Testament, which is known as Pentecost in the New Testament. The wheat harvest is a picture of the gathering of the people in the church age. When Pentecost came, it was the time of the giving of the Holy Spirit. It came in Acts chapter two. While he's out in the fields, Reuben found what are called mandrakes and he brings them to his mom. He's a nice little boy and he's got a special treat for mom. There's an enormous amount of speculation as to what mandrakes are. Some people claim to have definitively identified them as one type of plant or another, and other people will deny the claims that were made. The word here is used in only two other sections of the Bible. It's the word dudanim. It's found once in the Song of Solomon under the same context, and then it's found in a different context in the book of Jeremiah. In the Song of Solomon, it says that the mandrakes give off a pleasant fragrance. And so that kind of gives us a clue as to what they may be. In May, though, the fields are just full of flowers. And so it could fit one of a plethora of plants. Whatever a mandrake actually is, from the context of the passage, it's clear that they were thought to promote fertility. There are several plants in the Middle East which are used in this way, so that doesn't really help much either. But one very good candidate is known as the Alron. It's a, a, a 
plant known in its Latin form as the Mandagora vernalis. These are common, and they're about the size of a nutmeg, and they have a strong but a pleasant smell. Apparently, the people of the area are still known to use this particular plant in attempting to get, you know, uh, bear children even to this day. Now, if you ever want to get off on a completely, and I mean a completely useless tangent, you can read commentaries by people that claim that these mandrakes were used by Jesus to, in order to make Lazarus appear dead. And so he faked bringing Lazarus back to life. And because it so worked so well, guess what he did? He tried it on himself too. So he had himself nailed to a cross and he took some mandrakes so he'd appear dead and then he came back to life and faked the whole thing. Now, I got to tell you, this is the kind of stupidity that I recommend you do not bother with. Whatever mandrakes are, they were known as an edible fruit and they were well known so well that a little boy came and he picked some and took them to his mom. He was doing what beautiful little children all around the world do all the time by bringing home mom a special present. Verse 14 continues. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your mandrakes. Now remember, this is Rachel speaking to Leah. She knew the supposed uh, use of these mandrakes and she asked Leah for some. The exchange that they're going to have tells us that either mandrakes are very rare or that if they're abundant, the season for mandrakes was not a good one. If not, then what comes about between the two of these probably would not have happened, all right? Verse 15, but she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? In Genesis 29, verse 35, after having had her fourth son, it says that Leah stopped bearing. What may have happened is that Jacob simply stopped going into her. Now, both Rachel and Leah gave their maidservants later to Jacob, and he had two children each from each of those maidservants. So what's possible is that Jacob is now spending most of his nights with Rachel, simply out of love for her, and maybe because she wanted to just keep trying to have children, because everybody else has had some and she hasn't. And this seems to be what's happened, because Leah says that Rachel took away her husband. He isn't spending any time at all with her now. The nightly argument could have been, well, Leah has four children and I still don't have any. So when Rachel asks for some of the mandrakes, Leah knows that she's going to eat them in hopes of having children. And that means that Jacob is going to be spending even more time with her and Leah is going to be left out in the cold completely. Like I said, if mandrakes were in abundance, Rachel would have just gone out and gotten her own. But the fact that she's asking for them from Leah shows how rare they probably are. Another thing to think about is that when Leah says, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? She is not comparing the value of her husband to mandrakes. She's saying that the mandrakes are all that she has left since she doesn't even have a husband anymore. That's a very important point as we get through towards the end of the sermon and we find out why these verses are here. A gift from Reuben has all the more meaning when she's not receiving any affection from her own husband. If she gives these mandrakes away, then she has nothing to comfort her in her unhappiness. Leah has forgotten about the Lord who had so abundantly blessed her in the past. She, she was given four sons right in a row and the first son of Jacob and the one which will bear the Messiah. She's forgotten all of that. And now she's discontent with the way life is. Verse 15 continues. And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. Once Rachel sees how unhappy Leah is about her own situation, she comes up with a plan to make both of them happy. Leah gets a night with Jacob without any interference from Rachel. And uh, 
she, Rachel, gets some mandrakes that she thinks are going to get her pregnant. And Jacob, Jacob is on the receiving end of this deal. Verse 16, when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I've surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. The Bible says that the worker is worthy of his wages. Jacob got hired for a job and I guess he's going to earn his pay tonight. With the bargain settled, Leah lets Jacob know what is what. There will be no argument from Rachel about the situation. But more to the point, because mandrakes are involved, Jacob would understand the reason for this exchange and why Rachel has allowed it. A night off from trying to have children would be worth it if the mandrakes will help in her conception. Whether Jacob believed any of this or not, though, is irrelevant. It would keep harmony in the house, and it was probably, in my opinion, rather amusing to him what's going on here. He had enough decisions to make. He's got four wives, he's got all kinds of children, and he's got to go out to work every day. There would be no reason for him to interfere in this and all the reason in the world to go along with it for the sake of peace and harmony. Jacob is a man on a duty, and he is going to get it done. And that leads us to our second thought today, which is two more sons and a daughter for Leah. Verse 17, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Once again, God here shows that he is transcendent over his creation. Leah gave away the mandrakes, which are supposed to help women get pregnant, and yet she is the one that ends up getting pregnant and having another child. Again, as we've seen before, God is in control of the details. Children are a grace which he alone directs, and apart from him, they simply do not come. And so now, after a time away from bearing children, Leah has a fifth son, and this child becomes Jacob's ninth child. Leah obviously prayed for this to happen because it says that God listened to Leah. And I'll tell you something, the cry of the afflicted is tender music to God's ear. He's patient and he will wait as we ignore him. He has all the time in the world to let us leave him out of the picture. But when we call on him, he's right there, right then working on a response. And I'm gonna equate that to our nation right now because we were a nation established on a covenant with God. Only two nations in the world that have ever done this. One is from God to the people and one is from the people to God. And we are the second. And we called on him for many years. He was allowed in our schools. He was allowed in our public institutions. And we finally just kicked him out. And here we are, we're not acknowledging him just as Leah had forgotten to acknowledge him. But once we turn back to God, he will acknowledge us. And I will give you a clue about that as well. The Bible sets the precedent in the book of Kings. It is the leader of a nation to whom God responds to. There are Christians all over America that are praying for America. And without the leader of the nation also humbling himself before the Lord, it will not happen. That is the biblical model. We see that time and time again. Even King David, when he did something wrong, God came in and the angel of the Lord killed 70,000 people in a single day. And he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm the one that did wrong. And that's exactly right. You are accountable, your actions for the nation. And until we get godly leaders back in this nation, we are gonna to continue to suffer. Things get a little bit better and you think they get better. And I'll tell you what, the next fall is gonna be even bigger. And we're going to continue to face this until we realize that we need God. And until we make right decisions and elect leaders that will humble themselves and not belittle the Bible in public, we are going to continue to suffer this. So that's just, uh, that's my, my thoughts on that. But when we do, he will respond right now, right then, 
The answer may not come though as quickly as we'd wish, but no prayer from his people, especially his people who are leaders of a people, will go unheard. The nice thing about fulfilled prayers though is that when they do come, we understand when they do come that it was at the perfect moment. Any earlier, and we may not have been ready for it. If we repent right now and turn back to God, it might be a year of you know loving God and then we might fall away. We may not be ready to repent and have God turn to us again. But any later, and the purpose of the prayer might have passed away. America might be destroyed, okay? But his timing is always perfect. And each time that we think that the delay was unwarranted, we can see, in fact, that it made us more ready to receive the blessing when it does arrive. Don't let your prayers, you know, any delay in your prayers be uh, frustrating to you. Instead, keep talking to the Lord and keep waiting on his perfect timing for it to be realized. In the end, we are all going to understand the wisdom which surrounds us and is working towards the fulfillment of a perfect plan. Verse 18, Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my husband, my maid, to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. As continues to happen, the child is named by the circumstances surrounding the birth. This has happened with every one of them so far. It continues now. Issachar means he is wages. Leah openly speaks about the situation. She says, Natan Elohim Sachari, God has given me my wages. Unlike the birth of her first four children now, if you remember, she's invoking the name of the covenant Lord back then. She's saying Jehovah. She only mentions the God of creation this time. She uses the term Elohim. But in the name of this child, Issachar, or he is wages, she's saying that the child is a reward from the creator because she gave her maid to her husband. And it's funny that she says that instead of tying it to the mandrakes, which she had given to Rachel. That's the reason why she got to sleep with Rachel in the first place is because she gave away the mandrakes, but she's tying it to the giving of her servant. And I'll tell you what, that has an insight for us to remember. And I don't mean to be perverse here. I'm just taking the Bible as it comes. What Jacob has done by having four wives is not unbiblical. I heard a preacher speaking about exactly this passage about a month ago. And he felt that what Jacob did was wrong by having all these wives. This is at a time before the giving of the law, okay? But even under the law and in the New Testament, there's no uh, prohibition against this. With one exception, elders and deacons in a church may only have one wife. Now, why anybody would want to have more than one wife, I don't know. But the entire point is that the Bible does not look down on this. Only elders and deacons in the New Testament, okay? And in fact, I want you to know that the law actually makes provisions for multiple wives. And based on Leah's comment about being rewarded for what she did, it is both illogical and it's nearsighted to come to the conclusion that Jacob was in the wrong. He wasn't. The Bible makes no such charge. All right, verse 19. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Apparently, these mandrakes did not work for Rachel because another year later, she still hasn't had a child, but Lara, Leah bears a sixth time, and now Jacob has 10 sons. Verse 20, and Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment, and now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. With the bearing of her final son, Leah exclaims, Zebedani Elohim Oti Zebed Tov. God has endowed me 
with a good endowment. And so she calls his name Zebulun. This name means glorious dwelling place. Because of six sons, she is certain that Jacob will now love her and will live with her. She is the mother of six boys, which in the context of the times and of the Bible was a great blessing. In the 127th Psalm, we read these beautiful words. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Jacob's quiver is growing all the time, and the majority of his strength has come through this wife, Leah. Verse 21. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. We saw in a previous sermon that Jacob will have other daughters that are not recorded in the Bible. The Bible is not attempting to diminish the role of women in the Bible, as feminists try to claim. And I mentioned this last week, but I'm mentioning it again because I like repeating things so that you remember these precepts. These feminists try to claim that, oh, it's all about the men in the Bible. But there are reasons why the males are highlighted. The reckoning of a person's family in the Bible is through the male. It's not through the female. The male is the leader of the family. And in the workings of God, the patriarchal family or the family that is run by a father is the one which is properly aligned with his intentions. Societies which cast off this guideline invariably devolve into chaos, strife, and eventual destruction. It happens every single time. God provides structure and he provides order for us because he loves us and because he knows what's best for us. The matriarchal societies, the ones where the mother runs the family, are poorer, they're less educated, and they are filled with far, far more crime. And they're a sad example of disobeying what God has ordained in the pages of his word. The move away from the traditional biblical family in America has led to higher crime rates, lowering of expectation in education and in the workforce, and yes, increased immorality. The female's role is simply different than that of the male. The male is highlighted in order to show what God has ordained and intended for us, not in any way to diminish the value of women in the Bible. And it's true that although the majority of the roles of uh, the Bible are men, there are a large number of women who fill them as well. And even more, the many, many women that you see in the pages of the Bible who are behind the scenes and they're working their lives in harmony with God's intent and bringing glory to him and stability and validity to the biblical narrative. Of the daughters of Jacob, only Dinah is mentioned, and this is because she is relevant to the story of the Bible. She's mentioned only eight times, and six of those times are in connection with an event which is found in a few more chapters. We're going to get to it. It's in chapter 34. It will cost, this event will cost Simeon and Levi, who are Jacob's second and third sons, the blessing of being the bearer of the Messiah. Instead, that honor is going to pass down to the fourth son, who is Judah. As I said, by introducing her and highlighting her, we can see God's work in, in the pages of the Bible as it leads from Adam down through Noah and then to Abraham, and then it goes through Jacob to Judah and then to David and then finally to the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And for this and for other important reasons, Dinah is mentioned when her other sisters are not mentioned. Dinah means vindicated. And it seems that Leah named her in response to the name that Rachel gave her son that was born through her maidservant. If you remember, his name was Dan. Dan means judge. This is a very similar name, Dan and Dinah. It means vindicated. 
That brings us to our uh, third and final thought here, which is Rachel's joy. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. What the Bible, what is probably about 13 years after the marriage of Jacob and Rachel, the Bible says that Elohim, once again, the God of creation, opened Rachel's womb. He remembered her at that time. Rachel had trusted in having children through a maidservant and then later in trying her hand at looking to the creation for children by eating mandrakes. Eventually, though, she found that neither of these satisfied, and the second option certainly didn't work. Mandrakes might be yummy, but they don't bring about babies. So she finally did what she should have done many, many years earlier. Rachel prayed. She prayed just as Isaac and Rebecca did, and as Leah appears to have done. God responded to their prayers, and he responded to hers about 13 years after being barren, or after being married. She was barren that entire time. And once again... I want to say this, and I want you to remember this. I say this a lot. Prayer is not a tool to get us to get God to do stuff for us. It's a way for us to communicate our heart and our desires to him and then to wait on his response. The response may be yes, but the response also may be no. And the response may be just keep on waiting. And the waiting in itself may be the response. God may be molding us and refining us through the wait At the end of the waiting, we may find that the very thing that we had been waiting for and praying for isn't necessary because the wait changed us in a way which took away the need. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah tells us these words, beautiful words in a very sad book. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. These words were written by Jeremiah at the most difficult time in Israel's history up to this point. The people were suffering through the affliction that was brought about by their own disobedience. There was hunger, there was disease, and there was death all around Jeremiah. If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah and you didn't weep, I have to wonder about the condition of your heart. It is unbelievable how sad that book is. But if there was ever a man who should be able to just simply snap his fingers and claim his way out of the trials, you'd think it would be Jeremiah. He was called at a very young age and he prophesied to the people of Israel through doom and disaster and people threatening his life. And you know what? We get these people on TV and they say, I claim this in Jesus' name and I claim that in Jesus' name. And they they want blessings right now. And I got to tell you what, that is not the biblical model at all. The Bible never says that we can claim anything in Jesus' name. Instead, Jeremiah waited patiently on the Lord. He offered prayers and he waited. Rachel offered her prayers and she waited. And guess what? Her prayers were finally answered. Verse 23, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. As the Geneva Bible says about this verse, Because fruitfulness came as God's blessing, who said, increase and multiply, barrenness was counted as a curse. And they're right. Going right back to the very beginning of man's time on earth, bearing children was considered a blessing. To the women of the Bible then, the reciprocal must have seemed to be true. If I am not a blessing, then I bear reproach. Finally, after these many long years, God took this reproach away from her and gave her a son as a blessing. 
verse 24. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. I'm going to say something now, which is important. And I hope you'll try to remember what I'm going to say, because I'm going to tie it in in another couple minutes. There is a duality in the name of Joseph, which not looks not only backwards, but it also looks forwards. The word for has taken, which she said two verses ago. Let me read it. God has taken away my reproach is the word asaf. Okay. And now in this verse where she's citing, she says, the Lord shall add to me another son. The word for add is Yosef. They're the same basic word. And she, this is the only time that you're going to see this in the, the uh, bearing of the sons of Israel. Two words which are basically the same are being used. One is God has taken away Asaph, and then God has added or will add to me Yosef. In taking away the reproach, Rachel now looks to the Lord to give her another son. And so she calls him Yosef. Very important. He shall add, increase, repeat. He shall double. The name he receives is literally fulfilled, literally, in two ways. The first is that, in fact, he will have a brother. His name is Benjamin. But Joseph himself will also have two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. In taking away the reproach, God has showered Rachel with his grace and his love. And for the first time in the biblical narrative, we've been talking about them now for weeks and weeks and weeks, the first time she invokes the covenant name of the Lord, Jehovah. She acknowledges that he is the one who is going to accomplish these things. She has left the world of fighting, of derision, of superstition, and of envy. She was fighting with her sister. She's deriding her sister. She's superstitious about eating mandrakes. And she's envious of all of her sister's blessings. And she's left all of that behind. And she has truly entered into the covenant care of the Lord, who directs all things for the fulfillment of his plans and his purposes. Now that we've looked at the surface of this story, the historical and the cultural aspects of what happened, we need to ask ourselves, why? Why is this story here? What is it that God wants us to see? And the answer is, as it always is, Jesus. Here is the light that God is trying to tell us about this beautiful story. Reuben, he is a son who is born to Leah, who pictures the law. Now, if you weren't here for the previous sermons, this isn't going to make any sense at all. But Leah is a picture of the law. He gives mandrakes to his mom. His name means see a son. He now pictures fallen man who is attempting to regain spiritual life by works. The mandrakes are something that we use in order to receive eternal life. This is true of every religion on earth outside of Christianity. It's false religion. And what it is, is that Christianity says God has done all of the work and we receive it by faith. Every other religion on earth says that I will do something to please my creator. And that's what the mandrakes are picturing. The mandrakes pass from Leah, who pictures the law. She gives them over to Rachel. And it's done through Reuben, okay? So, uh, the mandrakes pass from Leah to Rachel, and then Leah has the child, not Rachel. Leah na names this child Issachar. He is wages. This is a picture of the hope of new life, the renewal of spiritual life to man, which was lost at the fall. This is Jesus fulfilling the law on our behalf. That's why she picked the name Issachar. Reuben gave the mandrakes to Leah, but Rachel, a picture of those outside of the law, asked for them. They're out there searching for God in the wrong way. 
But Leah bears the child, a child born under the law. This is Jesus born under the law, as Paul exclaims in, or explains in Galatians chapter 4. He says there, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Leah names this child, he is wages, Issachar. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the wages that we need to move from death to life. After paying our debt comes the next son, Zebulun, again born to Leah. His name means glorious dwelling place. It is the place that Jesus went to present his blood after the crucifixion and the paying of the wages, the Issachar. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us this. It says, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are a copy of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And once he appeared to God, his Father, in the glorious dwelling place, the Zebulun, we see the final part of this picture from Leah. It records, Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. The final child of Leah, who pictures the law, is the final point to show us the fulfillment of the law. Dinah means vindicated. Paul tells us the fulfillment of this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the 16th verse. Beyond all question, the mystery which, from which true godliness springs is great. He, Jesus, appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, which preached on among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. He was vindicated by the Spirit. It is proved by the resurrection. Jesus Christ prevailed over the law, which is pictured by Leah. He is our wages, which is pictured by Issachar, unto eternal life. He entered the glorious dwelling place, which is pictured by Zebulun, and he was vindicated by the Spirit, which is pictured by Dinah. All of this is pictured in the birth of these three by Leah, the law. But this leaves us with the last birth to be considered, Rachel's first child, Joseph. Why were children born to Leah, but not to Rachel? What is it that kept her from bearing children? And the answer is God. God is the one that controls the womb. And the answer is found in who she represents. People dependent on the grace of God, the world apart from the law. The law brought forth her son to redeem those under the law, the Leah. Only then could we too become children of God. Notice that the mandrakes did absolutely nothing for her, just as false religion does absolutely nothing for us. Only when she called on the Creator was she able to bear, and indeed she did. She bore Joseph. And remember I told you to pay attention to that name. He will take away Asaph, and he will add Yosef. In one fell swoop, God took away our reproach, Asaph, and he added us to his fold, Yosef. This is why she used both terms when she gave the reason for the child's name. The increaser, the repeater, the doubler. It's Jesus. He has brought forth sons from those that are under the law and those who are apart from the law, from Jew and from Gentile, from male and from female. In him is the embodiment of the law and in him is the grace of God. If you remember all the way back at the beginning of this story, it occurred in the May time frame. It was at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was given at that time, and this is the time of the birth of the church. 
The grace is poured out upon the sons of men, and the wheat harvest pictures that spiritual harvest which is going on in the world right now. This is why these children are mentioned. This is why they're mentioned in this order. And this is why God has given us this story. Once again, as it always is, it is about Jesus. God is telling us this time and time and time again about his work through Jesus Christ in the stream of humanity to restore us to him. Now, this is where we end today with a child of joy for Rachel after many, many long years of waiting. And I got to tell you something for you. It might be the end of a time of waiting too. You may have been fighting the call all your life. You uh, uh, have just heard about Jesus and you just kept saying, next time, next time, I'm just gonna put it off. But I tell you what, he is there and he truly wants to share in the blessings with you that can only come through him. So give me just another minute to explain very clearly and very concisely why Christ came. God created us and we turn from him. That's pretty much it. We all know that every one of us thinks bad things We do things that we shouldn't do, and the Bible says that our sins have separated us from our God. And in order for us to have a relationship with him, we must be perfect because he is perfect. But we can't be perfect. We can't go back and undo the sins of our lifetime. We're we're going ahead in time. There's nothing we can do about it. And so what did God do? He stepped out of his eternal abode into the stream of time that he created and united with human flesh in the womb of a woman. So he didn't inherit Adam's sin. And now he comes out, he lives this perfect life that you and I could never live. And it's pictured in this story today. He fulfilled the law that we could never fulfill. And then he gave his life up as an exchange for us. He is our wages for eternal life if we will simply call on him. And we can be vindicated by the spirit just as he was by calling on him. And it says that the moment that you call on Jesus as Lord, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is something that can never be taken away God does not work in time from time. He works in time from outside of time. So once you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, in his mind it is done. He says, it says in the Bible that you are already glorified. You're already seated with him in the heavenly realms if you've called on Jesus Christ. So if you've never done this, if you've never by simple faith asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to give you his garments of righteousness, do it today. He is the Prince of Peace and he will give you the peace which surpasses all understanding. I got a closing verse for you today. It's from Isaiah chapter 54. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 through 36. It's called to build a flock. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. He gave his life up. He's going to start building a church. And next week, we're going to see that. Wonderful pictures of what's coming. I'll tell you something. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. I got one more thing for you before we take communion today. And this is what we do every week. We take the verses that we looked at and we put them into a poem. And uh, pretty soon we're going to have a poem of the whole book of Genesis. But this is called Then God Remembered Rachel. Now Reuben went in the days of the harvest of wheat and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. He was so sweet. Maybe with a special kiss, the gift was sealed. Then Rachel said to Leah, for goodness sakes, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter to you? that you have taken my husband away. 
Would you take my son's mandrakes too? Would you do this to me in my sorrow today? And Rachel said, therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. I'll make this deal, all right? When Jacob came out of the field ready for bed, it was in the evening time. Leah went out to meet him and she said, you must come in to me tonight. Yes, tonight you are mine. For I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with Leah that night. Yes, for goodness sakes. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and she bore to Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages as I believed. I gave my maid to my husband not to be outdone. So she called his name Issachar. These kind of wages are not kept in a jar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. God has endowed me with a good endowment. I am number one. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons, you see. So she called him Zebulun. This she did proclaim. Afterwards, she bore daughter, a daughter, and Dinah was her name. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son, how swell, and said, God has taken my, away my reproach none too soon. So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son in the days ahead. Jacob's family is also almost complete as the story does unfold. And through these pages, we see the genesis of Israel. Every word is given and every word is told to teach us of the things that to us God does tell. Though this group of people, through this group of people will come the Savior and to them he will return again someday. To him we should direct our daily behavior and to him may we be pleased to say, O oh, great and awesome Lord, majestic in all your ways, thank you for your precious word. May we search its pages all of our days. And in you alone may we delight until at last you take us home, some glorious day or maybe some night. We know for us someday you will come. Until then, we shall walk in your light for all of our days, and to you alone we shall utter all our resounding praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful story of the coming Christ and what he did on our behalf by paying the wages by giving his life on our behalf and then going into that glorious dwelling place where you are and presenting his blood and saying, see, Father, I've prevailed. And after that, he was vindicated in the spirit by the, the proof is by the resurrection. And we thank you for that. We thank you that this picture shows us that. So we have the surety of what we know in the New Testament of what Jesus came and did. And we put our faith and our trust in that, knowing that if we were to uh, attempt to do these things ourselves, we would just lay in the grave for all eternity because we're, we're in our own sin. But through him, we are completely cleansed and we are pure and we are spotless. And so that when you see us, you see your son. Thank you for that gift. And Lord, I'd pray for each person here that uh, they would uh, go forth in the week ahead proclaiming your name and uh, giving you praise and glory and honor for all that you've done for them every meal they eat that they're appreciative of it and uh, every person that they meet that they would tell about your glory lord thank you thank you for everything you've done for us and we just want to give you the great the praise the glory and the honor in the exalted and precious name of our lord and savior jesus christ and it's in his name we do praise you amen